Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, October 20th, we are studying Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 to 27. Word of the Israelite victories is spreading throughout Canaan. Most of the kings will ally against Joshua and Israel, but the people of Gibeon take up a different strategy. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Mark Bars. Pastor Bars serves at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Bars, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Great to be with you again this morning. Great to be uh, an opportunity, great to have an opportunity to work on a section of Scripture that, as I told my wife the other day, you know, I've read this, of course, right. but then you think, whoa, now I have to really, really <laughs> dig at it, and there's a lot here. <laughs> so you, you've you never preached on Joshua 9 on a Sunday morning, huh? That's right. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> I don't think this one shows up in the lectionary anywhere. I don't think it does and, either. And sometimes, I don't know that we cover it in Sunday school. We get Joshua 6 and the fall of Jericho, but I, I don't know that we, we always get to, to chapter 9 in the book of Joshua, but we get it today. So give us some context. What should we know as we prepare, as we prepare to look at this chapter? Well, for almost two weeks now, your listeners, the, those who study God's Word through sharper iron, have heard the narrative of moving from the east side of the Jordan after the death of Moses and Joshua being placed as the leader of the Israelites, uh, crossing the Jordan, that, that wonderful story, much as the crossing through the sea, now the passing through the dammed up Jordan River, uh, the circumcision event in chapter 5, the conquest of Jericho, and then uh, just my own little notes, the non-conquest of Ai, because it didn't work the way it was supposed to, and then the uncovering of the sin and the eventual stoning of Achan, then the conquest, the delayed conquest of Ai, uh, this whole concept and whatever has been discussed, I haven't listened to, haven't listened to all of them myself, devoted to destruction, Mm -hmm. this this, uh, holy war idea, the covenant renewed at Mount Abel, and there's... uh, there's a, a lot waiting to happen, as, as we'll see unfolding in the whole book of Joshua. Sinai is somewhat repeated in that event, and now, and now they're ready. But uh, here comes a little bit of a, of a surprise in chapter 9, it seems. Uh, not what you would expect to happen. There, there are, as you said already, and we'll see this in the chap- as the chapter begins, an alliance against the Israelites. But there's a there's a, a group of them that are that are not a part of that alliance. So let's let's discover what that's all about. All right. So let's let's start reading. How far do you want to do you want to read the whole chapter or do you want to divide it up somewhere? How far do well, you want to go? 
I'll tell you what. Let's let's divide it up after the after they come with their delegation at, through verse fifteen. Okay. Let's take through verse fifteen. All right, Joshua nine verses one to fifteen to get us started. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. That takes us through verse 15 of chapter 9. Okay, so Pastor Bars, let, let's start with the text. There's a, there's a contrast from between the first two verses and then what happens in the rest. Tell us about the general reaction in the land of Canaan to what's been happening with the entrance of Israel. Well, I suppose that uh, current events in our world, especially, especially in Ukraine, and um, the European Union conversations and and all of this might say, hmm, what is old is is always new. This happens again. So there's there's not really an invasion by the Israelites. It's it's they're taking possession of what God has meant to be theirs. And we'll we'll talk more about what that means. That this is this people is his possession, and they will give it, be given this land as their possession. But clearly. There's there's a response and a military response, a planned a military campaign to resist this. It's not all seven of the named tribes that are that are uh, named earlier in chapter three. Uh, for some ever, whatever reason, the Gergesites are not are not mentioned in this list. But but they become they become allies and they have they have heard. That's interesting. They heard of this. Um, well, what did they hear about? Hmm. Especially, I think the three events. The three events would be the crossing of the Jordan at flood stage, which was not an easy thing to do, except that God takes care of it and dams up the river, the fast-flowing river. 
Secondly, the fall of Jericho, the crumbling of the walls, no assault, no siege, uh, but this strange parade around the city and the, and the walls crumble. And, and perhaps I'm given a little bit of confidence by what first didn't happen at AI. Well, they tried to take another city and, and that didn't work. Oh, but it did. And that city was given over, given over to destruction. So, so what do they do? They, they have to be allies. Uh, these are really more tribes, I think. Uh, mm. They're not political entities so much. No, they, they possess different areas of, of what we would know as and often call the Holy Land. Uh, but, but it's interesting that Joshua, in his record of this, also gives us a, a nice geography lesson. So what, what does Israel look like? There is, a, there is somewhat of a spine of mountains running from the Carmel Ridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I prefer to say that. It, you know, we read about Mount Carmel, but it's really the Carmel Ridge that runs out of, out of modern-day Haifa. And, and it runs pretty much down the spine of the country through Jerusalem and beyond Jerusalem. So, so he talks about, Joshua, Joshua talks about um, the, the hill country, and then the Shephelah, the, the lowlands, the, the land going to the west, south towards the Mediterranean, and the coastal plain, actually a very narrow, narrow coastal plain, which, which might, might surprise some people. They think that it's all, it's all flat. It starts to rise pretty quickly off the Mediterranean. But they gather together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, the Gibeonites know the same things. They right. they know they know the realities of this mass of people. It's a large number of people. It's not hundreds. It's not thousands. It's hundreds of thousands of people who have who have come into this land. So that's what that's what we see in the contrast in verse three when they hear what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. They make a different plan. It's not to resist them militarily. And, and for whatever reason, this subgroup of the Hivites seems to be mm-hmm. what, the, what the Gibeonites are. They, they, they imagine, they plan a very different strategy. It's, it's well thought out. They, they don't, this is not something, well, let's go over and just try to be nice to them or something. I mean, they, they plot and they plan. And oh my goodness, it's it's so interesting to make how they make their journey, and they're worn out. That that word is echoed four different times: worn out sacks, uh, worn out wineskins, worn out sandals, and worn out clothes. And and whether they actually baked bread and took it along, it says it says in the ESV, I, I it says crumbled. Yeah, uh, that is crumbled. I, I I prefer to think that it's moldy. It's yeah. actually a word that means that it has spots on it, or that can have can have spots on it. So, I mean, they make every pretense of we've come a long way, and we've heard about this God of yours. It it's very interesting that very quickly they say some things. They do say they're from a distant country, and cut a covenant with us. Now it doesn't get translated that way. But this is the language of the Middle East. You you don't you don't sign a peace treaty. You don't you don't negotiate some kind of contract. You cut a covenant. If we go back to Genesis 15, mm-hmm. God cuts a covenant with Abram, and and 
divides and cuts between it, passes uh, the, the smoking pot and the, and the flaming uh, and the flame and it goes between. Sometimes the people would walk between uh, different parts of an animal or an animal cut. And that's, that language is going on and will be echoed back throughout this when, in essence, when Joshua and the Israelites cut a covenant with, with, the, uh, with the Gibeonites. So I'm I'm picturing this in my mind, and, and again, just the, the contrast between the two. On the one hand, you've got these six nations that are listed dressing themselves for war. So imagine all these armies getting ready for battle. And then in, in quite the contrast, you have the people of Gibeon wearing the exact opposite, the worst clothes that they can imagine. You know, it's it's quite the quite the picture in your mind to, to keep them like that. And I, I like, you know, moldy bread, just everything that you would never prepare for a battle this way. They clearly have something else in mind. Verse 6 says that they go to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and and begin to to weave their tail that mm-hmm. that they've got they've come from a distant country. So talk about where Joshua is at, at Gilgal and how the Gibeonites uh, begin to you know lay their their plot. I don't know what to, what to call it. Yeah, talk about what what happens. Well, just to comment about whether it's a plot or not, it's interesting. I suppose many of many of our hearers, uh, whatever Bibles they're using, I suspect a number of them have the Lutheran Study Bible, and it says the Gideon Gibeonite deception, right. and and that that's one aspect of this whole chapter. But it's it's not really it's not really I don't think a very a very descriptive title for all that is happening here. I have a I have an atlas in my hands. Of course, we're on the radio. I can't I can't even show it to a show it to camera. I, I bought this. I think in either in 1974 or 1975, when I was a student at Concordia, then junior college in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I studied it for my Old Testament and New Testament classes, I have things circled and highlighted back from those days almost 50 years ago. There are at least two Gilgals in, in Israel, and the one that is used already in the story of Joshua is the one near Jericho in the Jordan River Valley, the, the, low, the low part of the uh, Rift Valley of the Jordan River. But there is a, another Gilgal, which is quite possible, po- quite possibly where they have relocated. It's near Shiloh, so it is uh, due north of, almost due north of Jerusalem, north and west of Jericho. It is a much more uh, militarily advantageous position to be in. And, and it, would, it would seem, uh, and, and other, other commentators and scholars have suggested this, that they make themselves, if they stay at Gilgal down by the Jordan, they make themselves vulnerable. Uh, they're, they're, there's not, it's not a defensive position. And so it's possible, and, it, and it's not, I don't think, of, of uh, the most the most important point in all of this, but wherever they are, this this representative group making themselves ambassadors, that's some other language that's mm. going on there as though as though, well, we're we are sent out. We've been sent on a mission. They've uh, once more, they've they they've plotted this in detail how they're going to approach them. And they say what you would expect in the Middle East. They say, we are your servants. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that they're volunteering to be servants. That, that word is really slaves, right. servants, slaves. It doesn't mean that they're volunteering for something. 
but well, what is the rest of the story and what will happen? And, and even the matter of food, that they show their food, and, and it is interesting that, that the Israelites, um, they, they take some of the provisions. They here is our bread. It is, it is still back in verse 14, down in verse 14, the men took some of their provisions. Whether they needed to ponder this a little more or consult or... Uh, but the whole idea of sharing a meal, to share bread and salt, uh, it's, it's not in our culture. I mean, meals are important. They should be important. Sometimes, sometimes we're in such a hurry that we, don't, that we don't spend enough time on meals. Uh, just a little sidebar here. Uh, my wife and I were in Brazil after Easter because uh, her father was born in Brazil and she still has first cousins, mostly in southern Brazil. And the meals down there took a whole lot longer. It would take two and a half to three hours to eat a, a meal with the charasco, the, the grilling that they do. But there's something valuable in that, in spending, spending time together. It's not just filling your stomach, but it's, it's the community that happens. Mm. So what what's going on that they would show food and bring food and are they offering to share it? Well, we really have nothing. Would they offer to eat with them? Perhaps so. It's not in the text. It's maybe, it's maybe implied. However, what they are doing is, is pretending to be something they are not. And, and this is a planned deception. It's, it's not, they are not far from, they have not come from afar off. They are in that area. So that's how we're going to see hmm, the discovery that happens in this whole situation. Hmm. What, what's striking about the Gibeonites is that it is there is deception involved. They are not who they claim to be. Yet, at the same time, when they start to talk to Joshua, after they've asked to cut the covenant, they've said, we will be your slaves, and Joshua inquires more about who they are, as they begin to talk about the Lord and what he has done, they seem to have a good conception of of who the Lord is, or at least what he's done, and they're they're taking the right side in this so that even though there is the deception involved that kind of makes us scratch our heads on the other hand you see what looks like some sort of faith so uh, what what do the gibeonites know what do they reveal about what they believe as they begin to tell joshua about themselves oh what a great question pastor apple i mean what what are they are they um the language that we hear, especially in the in the New Testament, are are God fearers, hmm. some who are who are coming closer to to knowing the true God. The uh, the the Ethiopian who is coming back from Jerusalem, and and, and at, at other times, Cornelius, Cornelius, these these who are hearing, they've heard something, and what they've heard is is of a powerful God, not a local deity. They've heard of a God who in Egypt did great things. And, and it puzzles us to, to, to uh, even, even wonder how news could travel. But it did. It did. And merchants carried it and armies carried it. And, and, and news did travel. They don't just talk about Jericho and Ai and, and the Jordan River being dammed up. They're aware of the plagues and, and no doubt of the uh, opening of the, of the sea and of Pharaoh's army being drowned. They know that, that this God, that this 
people claims to, or this God who has claimed this people is probably a better way to put it, has is is a greater God than any that they know. Are, are they are they afraid? Mm. I think in some way they are. They must be. But that 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 fear has has is beginning to create in them a wonder about who this God is and who these people are who who are possessed by this this amazing God. Hmm. And maybe I, I like the the language of of fear here, uh, and the reason is because this is one of the ways that the Old Testament, particularly, will talk about faith. You know, commending to us the fear of the Lord, and I do think the Gibeonites have a fear of the Lord, although not a not the same fear of the Lord that, for example, the Book of Proverbs would commend to us that that full faith. Here, rather, a fear that the Lord will destroy them seems to be the the fear that they have, and and per, and again, this is maybe speculation. Uh, but perhaps the fear that the Lord will destroy them unless they can somehow trick him into being kind to them. They don't seem to have a conception of the Lord's mercy. They only have the conception, as you said very well, that the Lord is the powerful God, the one who's not just the local one, but he is, is over all. And so we got to find some way to get on his good side. Uh, maybe we can trick him or trick his people at least. And, and notice once more the contrast, though, between the the kings of the other six tribal powers— who, who think our power can be as strong as if we go together, if we ally ourselves with each other, it can be, it can be enough to fight this. They, they've, they've, not because they're so few, these Gibeonites are just this cluster of four cities, you know, sort of a, a, a regional, a, a, I don't know, a small state within, within all these greater powers. But there's a brazenness that the kings have that, that they can they can repulse this this yeah. group this wandering itinerant group even though they their god seems to have done some some pretty pretty amazing things the gibeonites are at least humble enough in their fear to recognize that that they don't have anything that can counter him yeah, well, I, when I read those first two verses of Joshua nine, I I think about the the scene in Psalm two where the kings of the earth, you know, ally themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, as if they can somehow do something against Him. And of course, the Lord is in heaven laughing. By the end of the Psalm, you, you're supposed to kiss the sun lest He be angry. And it's the Gibeonites are, are at least moving in that direction. It seems so. So okay, they've got this fear of the Lord, perhaps a, some sort of faith, not maybe not the fullness of it yet, and then. And that, that part is kind of, and we can talk a little bit more about that later and think about in contrast or in comparison both to Rahab and the way that she approaches the God of Israel. Uh, but the, the text, as, as it moves on, it does bring out the Israelite re- reaction. So regardless of, of exactly where the Gibeonites are on this, this scale, it does seem that the text... Uh, it puts the impetus on Israel and and casts a negative light on them in the fact that they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. So regardless of what exactly is going on with the Gibeonites and, and where their faith is or isn't, the people of Israel, they make a mistake by not asking for counsel from the Lord. That's in verse 14. Help us in, into that. We've got about three minutes here before the break, so we can get started on that conversation. Thank you. Well, the first thing I would comment about that is I, I suspect that there are people— well-meaning Christians who have read this chapter and and found that verse 14 is the key to the chapter, hmm. meaning 
we're faced with some difficult situation, you know, personally, as, as a church, as a congregation, we must ask the counsel of the Lord. This is what we need to learn from this. The Israelites failed in that. Well, yes, they did fail in that. They, they did fail because they had been instructed. This goes back to Sinai. This goes back to the book of Exodus. This goes back to this rather... Um, what seems to us rather strange, but it is God saying, yes, I spoke from the mountain to my servant Moses and through my servant Moses, but through the high priest who will wear this breastplate and it will have on it various decorations, but it will have two stones called the Urim and the Thurim, and these will be a way that you will come to me and I will give you my guidance. I will give you my direction. There will be a much more of a direct revelation of his will. And again, Pastor Apple, I think that sometimes the people who the Christians who may read verse 14 and say, oh, we didn't ask counsel from the Lord, that, that they're asking for something like that. Mm. Oftentimes, some direct God speak to us, and you and I have had this conversation more than once about your former professor at the seminary, who, who Professor Jeff Gibbs, who said, don't look up, look down, look at, look at the word, look at the word. Now, the Israelites will be confronted by this because as the story continues, uh, they have to be aware that they have failed to do what they were supposed to do, and there will be consequences for that. They will make a vow apart from trusting and receiving the Lord's guidance and direction. Mm. So it, just to, to kind of try to go on that direction a little bit about the counsel from the Lord, they should have asked from the counsel of the Lord, this is a mistake for the people of Israel. But when we think about it for ourselves, we also should ask for counsel from the Lord, but we should expect his answer to be given in his word. And and sometimes there is some freedom within that so that, you know, you have a decision to make, well, what do the commandments teach? But they may provide some freedom as to there may be a variety of ways that you can make a decision and still keep those commandments. And so we don't want to be looking for answers apart from God's word today, right? That That's the key. We do want to ask for counsel, but look for the answer in the text and in, in what God has given and revealed very clearly in scripture. That written text of the scripture is our guide throughout our life. And it is that text that we are looking at here on Sharper Iron this morning. Today, we're talking to Pastor Mark Bars about Joshua chapter 9. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. 
a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 20th. We're studying Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 to 27 with Pastor Mark Bars. He serves at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Bars, prior to the break, we were looking at, the again, the Gibeonites' deception and yet their fear of the Lord. The people of Israel do not ask counsel from the Lord, and Joshua does make peace with them. There's more text to be read. You were telling me during the break that what we're seeing here is not really a, a political issue, but it is a theological one. How does, how does that reveal itself in this text? Well, it's a theological crisis because— it will come down to what does it mean when one people that is known by and claimed by God and and given their special status is is encountered by a people who use this this really interesting phrase we have come because of the name of the Lord your God that was back in that was back in verse 9 who as as we talked about for a little while, uh, perhaps we could call them God-fearers. And, and now the theological crisis will be, how, do you, how are you faithful to the oath that you make, and how will you be faithful to, the, to those who are uh, in some way also making an oath, that, that they want to be closer to this God that you know and that and that you worship. I think one other aspect, one other aspect of this is is this whole idea of the of the holy war. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some really good notes, and this dates me a little bit. That that uh, my Concordia Self Study Bible is worn is is so worn because I've had it for so many I've had it for so many years. But in the section on Joshua, and for some of our hearers who may have may have those, I would encourage them if they haven't done so to to reread. To reread that section, that uh, this is not simply God uh, claiming a, a chunk of property and saying my people need need land, but it's it's God breaking into this world and and asserting Himself as as the one true God. It, it's not that that He wants um, this one land. And, and wants to put a, a political boundary around it. He's using the land as a picture of his church, of, of a holy people, of a, of a people who were once not a people, but are, but are now the people of God. And so the holy war to remove any of the, any of the remnants of paganism, and why is it such a challenge when the Gibeonites want to be a part of this? Are they... A, potentially uh, tempting tempting the people of God and how will he ultimately use uh, the people of this place to be both a witness and a blessing and I mean we're trying to connect dots all the time and we should be uh, we're finally we're finally the, uh, the the apostles are told you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth and not to bring all to with one place, but that the new Israel, the church is gathered through Christ, is gathered and baptized in, in his name. Mm-hmm. 
Let's go ahead and pick up the rest of the text to see how this theological crisis is resolved. We are in Joshua 9, starting now again at verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. It's the rest of our text that takes us through the end of Joshua chapter 9. All right, so Pastor Bars, three days, it's amazing how many times three days shows up in the scriptures. I'm not sure if there's anything more than it's three days that they found this out, but they find out. Talk about the, the finding out of the deception for the people of Israel. Well, there's, there's probably some scouting that's happening. And, and once more, is the location significant? Which Gilgal is it? Uh, it seems this, this would be a little more likely that it is that more central uh, uh, in, the highlands, in the highlands area. And, and they're checking out who's around them. You know, where is the next, where is the next uh, assault going to come from? Or will the next venture be? That's what will continue in the book of, in the book of Joshua, a South campaign, a North campaign, all those, all those things that will happen. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this city over here, interesting that chapter 10 tells us that Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So uh, tomorrow you'll 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 let somebody else have have some fun with that. But but it it has a reputation, and yet it has at least three other smaller cities. I, I think cities in in a biblical sense is is very different than our than our our modern understanding of, of what a city looks like. I mean, I grew up in, in Northeast Nebraska and I didn't think anything was a city until it had at least probably 50,000 people. Right. And I'm thinking these cities were a fair bit, a fair bit smaller than that. And, and, and so they discover, they discover there's really a cluster of these cities. They have an alliance and, and what were they doing? They really are our neighbors. Mm. They live right. They live right next to us. They live among us. And now the reason for the theological crisis is because 
at least one aspect of it, is because they had been told that they were to, to rid the land of all the pagan influence. It's clear as we continue reading in the narrative of, of God's people in this land, uh, what happens when, when, that, when that's not true and, and the influences that, that come back in, the intermarriage and the, and the, uh, the idolatry that is, a, that is a part of that. So, so they're threatened by that because this is something they should be repentant of. Not only have they not, not only have they not, have they not asked counsel of the Lord? Now they have pagans living among them and within them. And one other part of this, the the style of not just in this chapter, but the style of the, of the book of Joshua of this of this record is that it it reveals information sometimes incrementally, and we find out a little bit more. And and now we say, hmm, well. They didn't attack, they couldn't attack, the Israelites couldn't attack because they had sworn a vow. They had sworn by the Lord, the God of Israel, and they must take that seriously. I suppose there are others, and I think one of my sources, as, as I was, as I was uh, getting ready for this conversation, did say that, that John Calvin pretty much said, yes, they were wrong. They should have asked counsel. And yes, they made a vow, but the, they, should have, they should have set aside the vow. They should, mm. have, they should have said, no, it's more important that we, are, that we are faithful. And so I guess we attack them and get rid of them or, or show that, that no, we, we can't uh, compromise ourselves in any way. Mm. And so um, verse, uh, verse 18, verse 19, the leaders, oh, I'm sorry, at the end of 18, the congregation murmurs against the leaders. Hmm, have we heard this before? Uh, on that journey, that 40-year trek, uh, that the people murmur against Moses and against Aaron sometimes, his brother who becomes the high priest. Uh, they have a good habit for that. And even though, even though we know in those years that that there is a change of the population. Uh, they've, they've remembered the habit and they murmur against their leaders. Now, perhaps in some way with validity that did you really make a good decision and did you not do due diligence by, by asking counsel from the Lord? But the leaders appealed to, to the vow. They cut a covenant. They made a promise using the name of Yahweh and and so that that doesn't allow us to touch them to to touch them with harm to hurt them because we've sworn this before the god we will let them live lest wrath be upon us we bring god's judgment back on us because we of the oath we violate we violate the oath we have sworn to them the leader said let them live Mm. You know what? What is striking to me about, and I don't, I don't know if this is a part of it or not. But as they are faced with this theological crisis, that on the one hand you've got the Lord's command to destroy the people who are in the land, but then on the other hand you've got you know the second commandment that deals with the name of the Lord and not wanting to blaspheme God's name. They don't ever, at least as far as I can tell, 
they don't ever inquire the Lord here either. Well, Lord, we find ourselves in this predicament. Which way should we handle this? Should we handle it, as you said, you know, John Calvin, that we, we ignore the oath and go ahead with the destruction, or should we keep the tree? They don't inquire, and I'm not sure that, that that's part of it or not, but it does, it does strike me that they don't inquire again, at least as far as I can tell. Maybe maybe that did happen, it's just not recorded. But it, it is, it's quite something to see this theological dilemma that they're faced with and the way that they, they handle it. They say, let the Gibeonites live, and they become the cutters of wood, the drawers of water for the people of Israel. Joshua, when he summons them and talks to them, he has very strong language for them. He says, you are cursed, and you will never be. That, that's strong language to, to curse someone. Uh, talk about the, the way that Joshua reacts to this and the way that he speaks to the Gibeonites. Well, before I do that, I want to I want to connect, uh, and we you've mentioned it before, and this I think is an appropriate time to connect it. It's it's Rahab, mm. and and now the Gibeonites are are an echo of Rahab, right. and and when they were told when you take over Jericho, destroy, kill everything, everyone, but not not the one who protected the spies, not the one with the cord out of out of the window, uh, not this one. So if, if they appeal to uh, once more, uh, God's mercy, not giving us what we deserve uh, in, in terms of his, in terms of his judgment or his wrath, uh, they would say, let, let them live. Let, let God, let God be merciful. So, so Joshua, Joshua must now uh, be this, be the spokesman as he is, as he must be. He is, he is the leader, and yes, um, he will, he will speak a curse upon them. He will speak a curse, and it's not the first time that there is a curse spoken on behalf of God by those that he has, by those that he has chosen as his, as his servants. Uh, the curse, the curse that God Himself speaks in at the end of at the end of Genesis chapter three. We need to be careful. Uh, I know we're talking, we're talking about Joshua. God doesn't curse humankind. Mm-hmm. He curses serpent Satan, and he curses the earth. He curses the ground with with thorns and and thistles and and all. Joshua, Joshua will in his response. Joshua will do several things. He will, first of all, he will appeal to this sworn oath. He will say, this is, uh, this is what we have done, and yet we will speak also, you said you would be our servants, you will be servants. Uh, there, there's, even, there's even a little bit of hint here. There's uh, one source told me that that uh, the city of, of Gibeon did have did have uh, water reservoirs. That was one of the things that it was known for. Mm. And so there's maybe a little bit of irony and a twist here. Oh, you're going to be water carriers for carriers for us. And even the fact that we know from other stories of Scripture, from Rebecca of uh, feeding or watering the camels to the woman at the well uh, in, in, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4, um, they're doing a, not just a menial task, they're doing, they're doing a, a woman's task. Hmm. However, something else is going on here. 
even though it's now the tabernacle and the profusion of sacrifices will will increase when a temple is built and and more can happen there wood and water hmm. are needed every day and and we'll call it this for the divine service hmm. no it's it's not the divine service that the church celebrates now but it is in some sense to support and to serve the use of the means of grace the tabernacle where god has chosen to dwell with his people the priests who speak to god on behalf of the people and who speak and who speak blessing from god and the sacrifices that are offered the the continual sacrifices that must happen practically speaking they need cutters of wood mm -hmm. they need people to carry water and and those roles would probably fall to the levites i suspect the levites are supervising uh, the gibeonites but but that's it, it's a practical functional thing even though they bear this curse of being slaves forever they are given the opportunity to be close to where god has come close to his people i can't help but simply wonder that this is this is missionary work as a, in an unexpected way. That's why a theological crisis becomes, becomes a boon to, to those who, who thought they would stand under judgment. Mm. But that's where I think the, you know, the language of curse, and you mentioned Genesis 3, and I think it's, it's well said that we should pay attention that he doesn't actually curse Adam and Eve there, but the curse goes elsewhere. The, the curse that's given here, I, I have a hard time seeing it as cursed in the sense of cut off from God's people because of the way that the text progresses. And, and as you're describing the, the potential connections here to the Gibeonites and later service for the sake of the temple, it was, I believe it's, it's Psalm 84 that, that talks about, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And, and it seems that, that the Gibeonites have a, some sort of attitude like that, that they recognize it is better to be a cutter of wood or a drawer of water in the in the camp of the true God than it is to dwell anywhere else. And again, even even in a you know a, the the fear of the Lord for the sense of, of dread of what He might do to them, and maybe not the full conception of God's mercy and grace yet, they do seem to be moving in that direction. And I I want to like the Gibeonites <laughs> as an example. Of, I mean, on the one hand, you know, man, why why are you de deceiving? And yet I I want to like them for these for these reasons because they although they don't have the same con confession as Ray. Have and the same, you know, just throwing herself upon the mercy. They they have the right; they're on the right side, at least in some sense. And so, I really want to like the Gibeonites in in part as an example. I I, I mentioned earlier as before we started talking this morning on on the air that I mean this is almost in, in my mind. I, I'm comparing it a little bit to the text from Luke 16 where Jesus tells the parable of the unjust or the unrighteous steward or manager, which I've always found one of the most challenging, probably the most challenging in the in the Gospels, but there, there's maybe I don't know. I'm, I'm drawing some comparisons here because the Gibeonites are deceiving, and yet they're on the right side, and that there's something about that that unjust manager that is commendable. I, I don't know, but I want to like the Gibeonites. That's that's where this all comes down for me. <laughs> well, here's another aspect of that. Uh, well, well, we would expect them to strike a bargain. You know, we, we have something we have something to bring to the table. If mm. if you do this, if you treat right. us in this way, we'll treat, they 
they come as beggars. Yeah. I mean, what? They, I mean, they literally look like beggars, right? They that's part of their that's part of their ruse, but maybe they don't realize. And and that's part of the the way there is there is a God revealing something more about the whole salvation story in this one interesting little anecdote in in the book of Joshua that that they are beggars. Luther hmm. Luther's uh, famous words scribbled and and tucked in his clothes just before he died. We are beggars. This that is true, and and so we are uh, to receive. And and yet, what what a way for the Israelites to be caught between here? They've made an oath, and and if they violate the covenant of peace, and if, or if they if they break, excuse me, if they break their oath and and not show peace, they've put themselves in a in a situation, and they too become. A way that God is showing mercy, maybe a surprise to them when when they're caught betwixt and between, and they are the people who know the God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the Gibeonites will learn to know that God. Uh, we we would hope and we would pray that that's the God that they became slaves to, and yet and yet learned that he was not only merciful to them, but he was gracious to them and calling them part of his covenant people. Hmm. we got about five minutes here on the morning, Pastor Bars. Uh, reflecting on, on Joshua chapter 9, as we said, not the most commonly read part of Joshua. We'd, I've never preached that on a Sunday morning, and sometimes it gets skipped over in Sunday school. Hey, you, you got this question in your notes, and maybe we can combine a couple here. One about, like, well, why is this story in here? You know, what, what is this story doing? What is this meant for our instruction? And then how is, how is mercy and grace evident within the story? And, of course, pointing us to Jesus. You know, as, as we reflect on this rather strange account, and yet seeing all, all that we've seen, uh, what do we do with this? Why is the story here? How do we see God's mercy and grace? Well, sometimes, sometimes we just have to say, "I'm going to wonder about that," and <laughs> and, and that would be okay. But I, I, by spending some time with for myself and with our conversation, and for those who are listening to us either this morning or whenever they are choosing to listen to, uh, to to discover that this is not the only time we we ponder a story and we wonder. Why is why is the story of the greed and the deception of Ananias and Sapphira in the mm. book of Acts? I mean, couldn't we have heard about the acts of the apostles and, and not needed that and not needed that story? Um, David and Bathsheba. Uh, but but in the bigger picture, we see how God is doing his work not only through his people, for his people, but also through his people in, in any of those stories, including this one. I think the link with Rahab is significant, and perhaps we've skipped past it in our quick reading of Scripture and just moved on and not said, wait a minute, God is showing mercy to those who are on the outside. It's not the only time. There's this there's this king of Persia that we get, we discover in, in Isaiah, near the end of Isaiah, the one who allows the exiles to return home. And he's called Yahweh's shepherd and Yahweh's anointed. He didn't even know 
that, that God was using him. Does God use these Gibeonites in their deception, in their uh, attempt to, to maybe be protected in the midst of what they, they see as certain warfare across Canaan? And, and even how, how they will, uh, in receiving mercy, they don't get what they deserve, uh, which is to be slaughtered and could have happened. But they're given this opportunity to be close to and closer to the God who is present among his covenant people. The Israelites as well, they don't get what they deserve for their failure to to appeal to God, to seek his counsel. Uh, They're not punished for those unfaithful actions or decisions. But in grace, they're they're given the land, uh, which is the type of the eternal land, that new heavens and new earth where all believers in Christ, where the people of the new and never-ending covenant will dwell. How good it is, how good it is that uh, this curse points us to an altar as well, the service that Joshua will require of them, and it is for the altar of the Lord. Yes, the altar is still present in our sanctuaries. It is a place where those who hunger and thirst for righteousness taste and see that the Lord is good as he gives us his body and his blood underneath the bread and the wine. But it is because our Lord has gone to the altar, to the altar of the cross, where he became the one, the servant, who came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And his service was fulfilled when he became the sacrifice to atone for every sin of every person, Gibeonites, Texans, Lutherans, the people, all who have heard the good news of salvation in Christ. Pastor Mark Bars is pastor at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, helping us today with Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 to 27. Pastor Bars, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Glad to be with you this morning. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He shows his grace and mercy both to Gibeon and to Israel in Joshua chapter 9. That mercy and grace is ours in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about Joshua, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.